This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm Mike Hoskins. Uh, today we'll be reading Matthew 5, 31 and 32, which can be found on page 810 of your pew Bibles. Again, that's Matthew 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, If you're visiting, I would guess that's not the passage you were expecting. Um, Hey, uh, we are in a series, though, on the Sermon on the Mount, which is why we're there. And um, actually, not to try to make a cheap connection, but could I name a couple things and then pray for us? Um, God is the kind of God who cares about the nations, and he cares about the betrayal and the hurt and the sadness that we experience in our relationships. So he holds the cosmos together. He holds all of it in his hands. He has divine purposes that actually will, will never be thwarted. And he's compassionate and cares and has things to say about areas of our marriage. So um, maybe we can try to hold those tensions together. And I'll just throw one more on there. I know it's Memorial Day weekend. So a lot of you are coming in with just a sadness as you think about loved ones lost, either in the military or in other places. And so you've got kind of a unique grief Um, this weekend, and then we've got a passage on divorce, and then we've just heard about the nations and a homeless ministry. So that's a lot to hold together. So let me just pray that God would kind of unite our hearts around him. Like More than just a text or a theme, can we have him unite our hearts around who Jesus is and what he's done for us? And I think that will be the grounding place for us to engage. What I hope you hear is actually a a very um, hope-filled passage, even if initially it sounds um, like the opposite. So let me just pray. And then uh, we'll ask God to help us. So Jesus, we come now. I've named a couple of things, and I would have guessed I'm not even scratching the surface of all the things that we're carrying into the room. Our jobs have been hard this week. Uh, Things at home have been hard. Things with our um, families have been hard. There's sickness and there's struggle. Uh, There's anxiety as we come out of regulations with COVID and in the new seasons for lots of different reasons. We've got kids celebrating them with school. We've got people that feel like hopeless because school is done. We've just got a lot. There's grief of loved ones lost. There's a stirring for the nations, a sadness about the brokenness of, of not just the church around the world, but the church right here. And, and now what's in front of us is this painful topic of divorce. So God, would you just help us? Would you rally us? Would you give us the kind of faith that invites you into that tension and believes that because of who you are and what you're like and the fact that you sent your son Jesus into the world to take on flesh and walk among us, the scriptures say that that allows you to be a sympathetic high priest who knows what it's like to be us. And so, so Jesus, who took on flesh, who, who walked this earth, who felt all the pains, everything I've just named, you, you've not just orchestrated cosmically, but you've experienced it as a human on earth. Would you come now and help us? You promised to never leave us or forsake us. You gave us your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you come and 
Would you orient our hearts around you? I pray that you would help us this morning. And for the particular pain that people feel because their situations right now are acute and they're in crisis, they're just barely holding it together even right now with these kinds of words being read. God, would you minister to them in unique, particular ways? I pray in their bones they could feel your presence, they could sense your nearness, that you're mindful of them and that you care. And for those who are hard-hearted among us, for those who this passage needs to hit as a warning, would you do that kind of gracious, loving, tender work to soften hard hearts? God, God, we trust ourselves to you and ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, I I know um, it's a lot to take hold of. It does feel like it dropped out of nowhere, this passage, but it really isn't a context that we've been navigating. Let me just say, though, we don't come just to this passage with the context of this sermon. You come with your own context of questions and hurts and stories and experiences and doubts and struggles. Some of you, you don't believe God is real because of a passage like this. How could a loving God actually have some parameters around your marriages or your remarriages? What kind of a God would do that? So some of you have struggled to actually believe that God is good because of a text like this. Some of you can't hear the words divorce without thinking about your current situation. You think about your grandkids or your kids or you think about your parents. You think about your own situation. Some of you, you encounter this with a lot of sadness because of regrets of things that that you have done. Some encounter with a lot of betrayal and hurt for things that have been done to you. None of us come to this text with like a blank slate. None of us just start from zero. I just want to acknowledge that. And I actually want to say it's what makes preaching a text like this both so important that we would hear it in a way that actually grounds us and instructs us and teaches us regardless of where we are, but also makes it really challenging because you've got acute situations. You've got real questions. You've got stuff you've been wrestling with probably for decades. And can I just say this? Like, I really care about that. This is the kind of church that really cares about that. And so where you find yourself on whatever spectrum and scale you might locate your heart, your life, your story, like we would love to engage with you. Like it's actually what we want to do is to apply the gospel to those situations. And so they are slow conversations. They are tear-filled conversations, but they are beautiful conversations to let the grace of Jesus be applied to those spaces in your life. And so I just want to invite you into a conversation. If as I'm talking, you're going like, I mean, you're never going to address my issue. I, I have so many questions. Like, I would love to walk alongside of you. Any of our pastors would love to walk alongside of you. We have people in our church who've been where you are, who are in different spaces of healing and hurt. And so there's hope for you here at our church around this topic. I just want to say that up front because as we talk through what I think will be hopeful for you, I realize there's some acute questions and I just want to invite a further conversation. So let me just say that now. I'll probably say it three more times because I really mean it. I really mean that your situation really matters. And I know no temptation has seized us except that which is common to man, the scriptures say. And yet the way those temptations have integrated with your story and your past and your personality brings some uniquenesses that it just deserves a face-to-face conversation, a slow, prayerful dialogue where God's word is opened up and we get a chance to listen and to hear. So, so I want to I say that. I also want to say I'm really thankful that this morning we get an obvious example of why it's helpful to just work through passages of the Bible verse by verse. We would never choose this text on Memorial Day Sunday or on Missions Sunday. We wouldn't like find a tight theme there, right? 
but I actually think it's really beautiful because it makes us talk about things we wouldn't normally talk about, but things that are crucial to your life. So a pastor is inclined not to choose a text like this because it is so complicated and so painful and there's so many implications and everyone has so many histories and stories. So we, we tend to just go past verses like this if we're just choosing a series. And yet when we walk through passages of Scripture, God puts in front of us really important passages and texts, whether you feel like it's a salve to right where you are or it's a historic situation or it's preemptive for something in the future. So kids, this is a really important text for you. To hear what God's word says about marriage and faithfulness and divorce and his heart towards you as you think about what it means to be a husband or a wife. Maybe as you deal with the sadness of some of the pain you've experienced with divorce in your own family or extended family like God, God wants to speak to you children. And if you're single and not married, this is a really important text for you. I think the time to talk about divorce and remarriage and nail down what you think the Bible says is actually before you get married. To come into marriage saying, all right, this is my commitment to, to my marriage. Of course, there's hope after we get married, but it's a really, really important text. And sadly, because we normally don't choose texts like this because they're awkward, you don't get to hear God's word applied to you. So taking a text like this in context is really, really important. One of my first roles in ministry was working in a mega church in Dallas in this premarital counseling ministry, which was hilarious for lots of reasons. One, I was 23 years old. We're married less than a year, and I'm like writing curriculum and training mentors. So when the Georgians say, like, I did their premarital counseling, like, I had pressure tested this material for about a decade with places where I just shouldn't have been speaking into. But, but at 23 years old, that's my job. And if you wanted to get married at this megachurch, I sat down with you. And I would talk you through divorce and remarriage and whether or not we could or couldn't do your marriage. So people who were like three times my age on their third or fourth marriage, me as a 23-year-old, and for the first time opening the scriptures with them, talking about what God's word actually says. And so that part was beautiful and really valuable, but really, really hard. And I remember thinking, for some of these folks, it's the first time they've ever dealt with these passages. They're engaged, they're ready to get remarried or for the third or fourth time, and now for the very first time in their life, they're hearing that God cares about that, that he says something about that. And so you can't help from that position to engage a text like this as prohibitive or restrictive. And you can't help but go at it and wonder like what the loopholes are and how you can get around things and whether or not you fit into certain type parameters. It's a really difficult conversation to have reactively. And so I, I want to offer, man, I would love to step into that space with you. It's an honoring thing to stand with you in that. But if we can have a proactive conversation as well, like a bigger vision of what God's doing, and let that be applied to your situation, I think talking about texts like this in context are super helpful. So I'm eager because it pushes us to have important conversations. I'm also eager because in context, it helps us understand the heart of Jesus for this text. We just dropped it in the middle of a Sunday morning service, but if you've been with us, you realize this is part of a sermon he's been preaching. It's the Sermon on the Mount, which is about the vision for the kingdom of God. That's the subject of the sermon, and what he's doing in this section is giving six illustrations. This is the third one of what it looks like to live in that kingdom. So we look back in verse five, or chapter 5, verse 20, where he says, what you need is a righteousness that's bigger than that of the Pharisees. It exceeds that. What we've been saying for the last couple of weeks is that doesn't mean you have to do better than the Pharisees and perform more than the Pharisees perform. What it means is you need a different kind of righteousness, one that's more than they could ever accomplish through their behavior and their law. What you need is a, a change from the inside out, like the song sang. 
Right? So he talks about Old Testament passages that he came to fulfill of taking our hearts of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. And what he's doing now is giving six illustrations of what that looks like. And we've said this, there's a pattern in all six of these, and it's true in this text as well. And here's how the pattern goes. Hey, you've heard it said, and he says it a couple of different ways, but essentially he starts with, hey, this is what you've heard talked about. It's from God's word. It's from God's law. Some of it's tradition. Some of it's a mixture of tradition and God's law. There's six illustrations he's going to give. But I tell you is the next part. So you've heard it said, but I'm telling you it's actually every time deeper. It's more beautiful. It's about your heart. So you've heard it say, don't murder. But I'm telling you, if you insult somebody, if you have hatred in your heart, you're as guilty as if you had outwardly murdered. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you, if in your heart you've lusted, it's as significant as if you've gone all the way with your body and been unfaithful. That's been the pattern. But the third part of the pattern isn't just, you've heard it said, but I tell you that it's worse. He says it's deeper than that, and the kingdom of God offers you something wholly different in response. So rather than murder and hatred, you can move towards reconciliation and forgiveness. Rather than adultery and lust, you can actually go to extremes with eternity in mind to help yourself kind of engage with people as humans, not as commodities, and keep your heart pure. That's the pattern. He's going to go into oaths next week about integrity. He's going to go into retaliation and about loving your enemies. There's six little snapshots, and he chooses this as the third one. I say that because putting it in the context means this is a hopeful kingdom ethic of how we engage with marriage. So it's actually first like protective and beautiful before it is prohibitive and punitive. Because he's saying, you've heard it said, but, but then I tell you. So now we're looking for what is that beautiful kingdom ethic. So look with me in the text. This is verse 31 of chapter 5. He says this, you've also heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He's quoting Deuteronomy 24. That's the first part of the formula. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So you're going, okay, I hear the law. I hear the deepening. I don't hear the good news. And here's where it's really beautiful to put this thing in context. I think we can highlight the heart of Jesus to actually help people engage in this text. Here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the context of this passage in the context of the larger story of Scripture when it comes to marriage and divorce. And then I want to talk about your specific context right so so what is it that actually is really good news in this text so let's go first into its context in this passage Jesus lived in a day like ours that had a no-fault divorce policy it was actually pretty rampant Uh, first century historians would tell us that divorce was something that would happen all the time think about what you know of ancient world women are seen more like property than they are equals and lovers and spouses they're more commodities that you exchange and so in that oppressive culture what was happening was people were taking God's word and misapplying it and they were saying hey if this woman displeases me I can set her aside and so we actually get insight in chapter 19 of Matthew of this context it will help us kind of engage it a little bit would you flip over with me to Matthew 19 just a few pages to the right it's on page 824 if you're in a pew bible so, so I'm telling you that the context here is pretty important with the first century. And what he wants to say is this is more about protection than it is about prohibitions. So in chapter 19, we read that these Pharisees, right, the ones that Jesus says you have to have more righteousness than, they come, it says in verse 3, and they wanted to test Jesus. So the question comes as a trap, not pastoral care, not loving somebody, 
not wanting to see God do them good, not wanting to heal them, but comes as a test and a trap. And they ask it this way, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is it right to just discard her regardless of the situation? And so you'd read that and go, no way. But in the first century, there were two schools of thought as they wrestled with Deuteronomy 24 that says if the woman was found to have something that was unclean or unsatisfying about her, then you could get divorced. We'll get to there in just a second. That had gone down two roads. One was a restrictive road that said, no, it's only in the cases of adultery. The other one said this broader application of anything that's found unpleasing about her, they expanded. There's a school of thought that said if she burnt your meal, if you found somebody more attractive, if she didn't meet your emotional needs, if she didn't make you smile when you walked in the door, if she didn't serve you correctly, that was considered unpleasing and you could discard her. So that's the question. Is it okay for you to divorce your wife for any and every cause? Look what Jesus says in verse 4. He answers them, have you not read? He, he takes this distorted view of the law and he says, have you not read? He goes to Genesis. That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And he said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He starts from their distorted understanding of the law, and he goes all the way back to creation and roots it there. Hey, don't you know what God designed? Let the design of what God has said actually speak into your distortion is what he's doing. So in verse 6, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Far from no-fault divorce, far from get, get rid of her for any reason, let man not have this separation. Let him not actually dismiss his wife is what he's saying. They don't let up. Verse 7, he says, then they say to him, well, then why did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So they're talking now about Deuteronomy chapter 24, which we'll turn to here in just a second. He says, if this is the way that God designed it, that there shouldn't be a separation, that God's designed them in one flesh, we should honor that. Then why did Moses say, give her a certificate of divorce? And listen to what Jesus says. He said that to them because of what? The hardness of their heart. Divorce is always rooted in hardness of heart, even if it's taken a decade to bear fruits in some sort of abuse or unfaithfulness or abandonment it always starts with a hardness of heart and he says that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives but from the beginning it was not that way he's making an accommodation he's making a concession he's actually trying to protect in a fallen and broken world and I say to you whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another one commits adultery so far from can you get divorced for any every reason he says the only way to break this covenant for you to pursue a divorce would be if they've already broken the covenant is basically what he's saying all right so in that passage what we see is the first century was trafficking like our day and age in loopholes seeing god as the kind of god who just sets up a series of traps and tests and you have to navigate that i think some of you guys read the scriptures in god's heart as this series of do's and don'ts that you have to hold on to and navigate in ways that actually set you up not to obey him and love him and delight in him but try to manage him try, try to avoid him feel a ton of shame R wrestle with what it means to actually be in a space where you rebel but maybe that's okay because his rules are so obtuse anyway maybe that's actually what's best in the name of freedom like those head games we play start where they were starting with this idea that God had given us his word not for life and flourishing but for loopholes so it's pretty it's pretty intense right so so far what we've said is there's a, a no-fault divorce that's pretty rampant they were discarding women left and right for any and every reason 
They come to Jesus to test him and trap him, right? Because that's the cultural move of the day. It was liberation and freedom and your rights and what's best for you and what your heart desires. That's the way everything had been turning. So they come to test Jesus in front of the people and say, hey, do you believe that, Jesus? Do you believe that your heart should be what drives you? Do you believe that you could do whatever your desires are? Do you believe that you should be bound to a marriage if someone's dissatisfying? Or should you actually follow your heart, Jesus? That's the trap. Doesn't that sound fairly familiar to our day and age. And then what he says is, hey, let me go now and not to answer your your specific question first, but let me remind you of what God's word actually says and intended. He takes them back to creation. And then he does say, hey, God is the kind of God because we live in a fallen and broken world that makes concessions for our brokenness. So this issue with this certificate of divorce is not a way to discard for any reason. It actually was a way to honor women. So let me just take you there real fast, and we'll go really fast for the sake of time. Flip over to Deuteronomy 24. It's in the Old Testament. So it's on page 166 if you're in that pew Bible. It actually starts on 165. Let me just kind of read a couple of these verses. So this is verse 20. This is chapter 24, verse 1. It says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce, and he puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs from his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, so if you find some reason to dismiss her, you write this certificate of divorce, which is saying why you divorced her. Because divorce in the first century or or in the ancient world would shipwreck a woman. Think about the way economically single moms struggle. Statistically, it's profound what happens to a divorce and, and women, even in our culture, how much more in the ancient world. So you had to, as a way of protection, not just get rid of her, but you had to say in writing why you were dismissing her. It was actually a way of validating her, right? She didn't do anything wrong. With me. So you have to write down, she burnt my food. That's why I'm dismissing her. So then she carries this certificate of divorce and she's able to actually get remarried to hold this up and go, look at what this clown did. He dismissed me because I burned his food. And the community would go, yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. You're free to get remarried, right? He abandoned you for something ridiculous. The certificate of divorce is actually meant to be a protection around this woman. Hey, you have to say why you're dismissing her. Tracking that so far? All right, so then if she goes out, verse 2, and becomes another man's wife, and that latter man hates her and writes her another certificate of divorce, like this is a tragic situation, and he puts it in her hand and sends her out out of his home. Or if later the man dies... The one who took her to be his wife, if he dies, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife because after that she has been defiled. This would be an abomination. All right, so this is kind of a weird text, but here's basically what he's saying. You can't just discard a woman and she gets married to another man and then he discards her and like a commodity you say, fine, I'll take her back. So more than just a loophole of whether or not you can remarry somebody you've been married to in the past, what he's saying is you can't just treat women haphazardly. You can't just take her back after you've dismissed her. It's not just, it's not right. And Jesus tells us this concession came to protect women because of the hardness of heart. Do you understand that? It wasn't God's design or intention. His design or intention was that we would be in a union with an equal that we love and adore for the rest of our life that we served and sacrificed, actually saw them as our own flesh. That's what Genesis chapter 2 says. But because we live in a broken, shattered world, there's a provision in the scripture to actually protect women. So, so they say, well, what about this 
crazy certificate, right? They've twisted that around to be something that let them actually discard a woman. And Jesus re-elevates women and says, no, 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 this is actually meant to protect her. That, that's the context of what's going on. So I think what's going on in this section then is what Jesus is saying. If the formula is, you've heard it said, but I tell you, what I'm telling you is you can't just discard her with some certificate of divorce. You've heard it said, if you just write it out, you're free, but that's a misunderstanding of the heart of God. What actually is true is the value and a worth of her. And hey, just to raise the stakes, can you realize this? It's not just something you do to her. If you divorce her, it's not just a commodity. She's a person. You would cause her to commit adultery, he says. And that raises the value of who she is, saying this, this one sin would add to another sin. And by the way, if you remarry a divorced woman, then you also commit adultery, dude. So it's not just about her and what she can do. It actually is about you as well in a strange way that I think would have shocked them the way it messes with our heads. Jesus is saying, hey, women are not commodities in the kingdom of God to be written off like bills of sale or shipping invoices or packing slips. They're co-heirs and co-equals. And if you divorce them, you cause her to commit adultery. So don't do that. Value her. And by the way, if you don't value her, would you just value yourself enough to realize this has implications for you in the kingdom of God? I think that's what Jesus is saying, right? Because the formula is true. You've heard it said, but I tell you, and there's a beautiful kingdom ethic. Now, if you start with this passage after you've already been divorced and you're asking to get remarried, you can't help but read it as punitive or prohibitive. But if you start on the front side before, and you're thinking about it as a child or as a single person, as somebody who's married, you're asking, hey, what is God's will for me in this marriage? And you read this passage, what you realize is this person that I'm married to can't just simply be discarded. I didn't design marriage to be this thing that was temporary. And if I became unsatisfied, I would then just set them aside. The certificate of divorce is written because of the hardness of our hearts as a way to protect rather than something that you owed or deserved or a way that you can actually find a loophole in the commands of God. Remember the big sky kingdom of God? It's bigger than just following the law so you can make yourself right and therefore feel entitled and owed something by God. It's actually changing you from the inside out. And the heart of God and the kingdom of God is to change the way you actually see other people so that you would move towards them with compassion. The main idea of this text is that it's meant to be protective, not first prohibitive. Now, of course, there's implications, but can you read it on the front side the way that audience would have first heard it? This would have blown their minds the same way. Hey, don't commit adultery, but also don't lust. Go to extremes to keep yourself pure. You're not owed indulgent thoughts about people as stuff that you can just consume. Guard your heart. Don't murder, of course. But I'm telling you, don't even see people as fools and insult them because they're made in the image of God. You can actually be reconciled to them. Lay down your rights and move towards them. Hey, when it comes to divorce, don't think about the person that you're married to as something simply that you can set aside with zero consequences. It actually has massive consequences both to them and to you. Okay, I think you can get to an orthodox view of the scriptures and a view of divorce and remarriage by not knowing that context. But in that context, that just feels so beautiful to me. To start with what Jesus wants to protect rather than what he's trying to prohibit until you know about. So when I'm with these couples talking about divorce and remarriage and what the scriptures say, I mean, the anger and the sadness and the despair that would come upon them as I walk them through the text and say, oh, friend, I'm so sorry. The way the scriptures talk, you, you don't have grounds to get remarried. 
you should go and be reconciled to your first spouse because they're not married yet. Go and ask for forgiveness. Go and be reconciled. I know you've fallen in love. I know you've been living together for a while. I know you're engaging in this for a while, but I'm telling you that's not the will of God for you. At that space, all they can hear is that God's trying to take from them. But in the heart of this passage, Jesus is trying to give to them. Do you see that? The warning about committing adultery is to elevate the significance of the moment and the relationship, not simply to to put it down. All right, so that's the context of the passage. What about the context of all the scriptures? We've already referenced a couple of places. So Genesis chapter 2 is the creation account where God beautifully paints this picture for us of a husband and wife becoming one flesh that's meant to be together for forever. That text will get quoted in Ephesians 5. It'll get quoted around divorce, like in, in uh, Matthew 19. It'll get, it'll get quoted around sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians. This idea that a one-flesh relationship should be protective, it should be binding, it should be this covenant commitment. That's the way the Scriptures talk. And actually, the end of the Scriptures in Revelation 19 also end with a wedding. So you start the Bible with a wedding between a man and a woman who are both naked and feel no shame. And it ends with a wedding between Christ and his bride where Christ has already covered all their shame and he welcomes them. So the bookends of the scripture are about marriage. Isn't that fascinating? Which says that what we're doing in our human marriages is pointing towards something deeper and richer, which is what Ephesians 5 actually says. So if we're asking what's the context of the scripture, start with the purpose of it and see it. It meant to be a portrait of Christ's love for the church, an attempt to actually engage in beautiful things in this life, a way that actually brings joy through this one flesh relationship. That's a lifelong commitment. That's the way it's designed. And then there is permission because of Genesis 3 where everything breaks and falls apart. In that space, you have regulations for our brokenness in Deuteronomy 24. You get a passage like this that says, hey, I know the ideal is you would stay together for forever, but sometimes there is such unfaithfulness that that it's okay for someone to step away from their union. Now we're getting into those spaces where you have a million questions about your situation and what do I do and how do I think about what the scriptures allow versus what would be good for me versus is there hope for reconciliation those are really complicated questions that I would love to sit with you and weep with you and ask God to actually speak to you about but the scriptures do make provision for divorce because of marital unfaithfulness and when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 you see there's also a provision for abandonment Uh, It says if you're married to an unbeliever and they're willing to stay married to you, then you should stay in that relationship, but you shouldn't step away. But if they step away, if they say, I don't want to be married to you anymore, if you've been abandoned by an unbeliever, then you're no longer bound to them, it says. You're you're free. So, So abandonment by an unbeliever is also grounds both for divorce and remarriage, right? It can be a legitimate divorce, even though it's so painful and would allow for someone to get remarried. And then it gets really tricky when you say, well, what is abandonment? And I've been in pastoral ministry long enough to know there are people that are so um, influenced by evil that they will stay physically in a marriage, though emotionally and spiritually the abuse is such that they have long since abandoned the marriage. And they would never give that person the freedom they want to be so controlling. There are ways that you can actually abandon by still staying in a marriage. Hey, these are those places where your pastors want to walk slow be prayerful, weep with you, and ask for God's help. But there, there are times where abuse is a space where, where you can be free to move forward. When someone is actually so off the rails that they have functionally abandoned the marriage. 
And, and again, man, we go really, really, really slow there. It's not they didn't meet your emotional needs. It's not that it didn't meet your expectations. That's not the kind of like emotional abuse we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of covenant-breaking abuse that's dehumanizing to you. That we would say as pastors, our first priority is to get you safe, to get you out of a situation where you're unsafe and get you in a situation where you can be safe so that we can begin to pray and discern. And we want to think about the resurrection power of Jesus being applied to even the abuser or the one who's been unfaithful to hold out hope for reconciliation and restoration, but not in the way that keeps you tied in an unsafe situation. We want to help you move forward. These are the counseling sessions. These are the offices. These are the coffee shops. These are the living room conversations where where we want to go slow. But there is, I think you need to hear context in the scripture for divorce and remarriage, which means there's not that many grounds for divorce. And as I say that now, there's people in the room who have got divorced under other conditions, right? It wasn't adultery and it wasn't abuse and it wasn't abandonment. It was something else. And so would you hear the good news of the Lord that Jesus died for all sins? And that divorce is not the unpardonable sin. That adultery is not the unpardonable sin. Even being an abuser is not an unpardonable sin. The resurrection power of Jesus moves towards that space and can actually heal and redeem. He died on the cross exactly because you needed forgiveness of those things. To the shame you feel, hear the good news of the gospel applied to that. Not in a way that erases the parameters, but in a way that actually helps us redeem them. But the scriptures speak to the regulations in a marriage which actually then for the christian proactively say oh i need to work hard i can't afford for there to be unresolved conflict i can't avoid for there to be i can't afford for there to be a a drifting i have to actually lean into my marriage i can't just wait and suffocate it and think that they're going to do something that would free me from this marriage my obligation is to actually move towards my spouse so let's talk about your context for just a minute if if it's meant to be protective and not prohibitive then how do you think about where you are when it comes to your marriages Let, let me say this there are people in the room who you're doing everything you can right now to hold things together because you're in an active situation of abuse or adultery or unfaithfulness and you're wondering, like, man, where, where is God's word for you? It's a hopeful word. Again, God wants to protect and care for you, not set you aside with loopholes in his law. The heart of Jesus in this text, friends, is to help elevate the value. And that includes the value of where you find yourself in the middle of chaos. So let's, let's please talk. If you find yourself in the middle of chaos, let's, let's please talk, not because... I'm smart and you're not smart, but because the God's given the community to you to walk alongside of you where you don't have to bear burdens alone and we can actually speak into your life. For those of you who are divorced, can I just say you're welcome here? I'm thankful that you're here. I don't know what you hear in the middle of this, but the scriptures would call you into a restorative relationship and we're the kind of community that's not shocked. There's actually people in our body that have your story, who've survived horrific abuse, who've been through unfaithfulness, who've actually committed adultery and had adultery committed against them. All of that is in our body. Like, you are welcome to be here. We're the kind of community that wants to walk alongside of you and give you gospel-centered hope. Not loopholes and laws to follow and hoops to jump to please God, but to actually tie your heart to the heart of God in ways that you see his love for you. So, man, if you're in this space and you're divorced, man, you are welcome here. 
if you're divorced and you're already remarried, the word of the Lord to you is to stay, to, to invest, to love, to cherish, to honor, to forgive, to, to move towards and to work on that relationship. And there's ways that you can go back and can ask for forgiveness from former spouses. There's ways that you can be reconciled in some spaces, but stay in that marriage that you're in that would honor God. And for those of you who are in marriages now and things are hard, they're, they're cold, they're numb, they're, they're drifting, they feel callous. There's a specific kind of word for you that I think this text actually becomes really hopeful for you. Because some of the daydreams you have are, what if I had married somebody else? I'm sure this wouldn't be happening. Well, what if I had married that person from college or I'd done something different, then, then I'd be happier in that space. And you indulge those thoughts for a decade and you wind up in a space where you're ready to get out. And by the time we have the conversation, a decade after daydreaming, it's really hard to get you off the edge of that cliff when you're already ready to jump. So to those of you who are married right now, the word of the Lord to you is there are not very many grounds for divorce that would honor Jesus. So your commitment to your marriage is to dig in, to trust Jesus, to believe the gospel, to actually transform you and them, and to move towards investing and cherishing and honoring and being reconciled and asking for forgiveness and extending forgiveness and grace to them. That is the word of the Lord to you. And in a way that I can um, maybe bring inside of my story a little bit, our first year of marriage was really hard. And there's a lot of reasons why. For the sake of time, I won't go into it, but, but it was a hard um, traumatic first year of marriage. We got married in March. By our first Thanksgiving, we're driving through the back roads of Oklahoma, and I'm daydreaming about divorce. B- barely been married. Haven't even made it a year yet, and I'm daydreaming about divorce. I, I want to be a professional Christian, and I'm daydreaming about divorce. I've been married less than a year to my high school sweetheart, who's amazing, and I'm daydreaming about divorce. And for a long time, I ruminated for months and actually weeks about the idea of like, man, this didn't have to be this hard. Surely there's another way. There's another person I could have married and she would appreciate me more and yada, yada, yada. All that stuff had got me in the spot where I had profound thoughts daydreaming about divorce. And to be really honest, it terrified me because I knew what the scriptures said and I knew what they actually called me to in that space. And so actually after we got through Thanksgiving, I got back to our hometown and I went and sat down with a counselor. And I just said, man, you told me to come talk to you if I was in a jam. I'm in a jam. I'm daydreaming about divorce. And here's what he said. It's the next sentence out of his line. Well, do you have grounds for divorce? And I said, no. Next sentence, well, then stop thinking about it. I was like, oh, oh, my gosh. Okay. Yes, that's right. I I don't have grounds for divorce. And all the daydreaming and indulging is actually making things way worse. I wasn't moving towards Adrian and sacrifice and service the more I daydreamed about divorce. I wasn't trying to foster intimacy with her the more I daydreamed about divorce. I wasn't moving towards reconciliation and forgiveness the more I daydreamed about divorce. I was moving away from her with a callous heart, believing that she owed me things she wasn't giving me. And I was entitled to these indulgent thoughts. And it took a man go, hey, do you have grounds? She hasn't been unfaithful. She hasn't abandoned. No, I I don't have grounds. Hey, well then, move towards your wife in reconciliation. And sent me home with a call to repent. With a call to actually ask her forgiveness. With a call to actually engage with her in a deep conversation. I think a passage like this, it's meant to protect, remember? It's meant to protect, not prohibit. It's not first rubbing your face and saying who's good and who's bad. It's meant to protect. To say, hey, would you realize if you were to cross a line and get divorced... 
you would make that person commit adultery. And then you would commit adultery as you married somebody else. And you hear it as restrictive, but it's meant to be protective. It's meant to say, so don't do that. This is not something that you write on a piece of paper that you have a lawyer sign up for you and you're free and absolved. God designed this thing to be a one flesh relationship where you're committed to each other and the world screams at you that you deserve more, that you should have more, you should experience more, they need to give you more. And you always compare your weaknesses to their strengths and their strengths to your weaknesses in ways that they're always in a deficit. So the the world would not lead us towards a relationship of sacrifice and service and oneness. It would actually lead us towards indulgent thoughts of what we're owed. And it may take you two decades, three decades to play that all the way out, but you will subtly, slowly suffocate your marriage unless you say, hey, I'm not getting out of this thing. Therefore, I have to lean in and invest. I'm not talking to those of you who are in abusive situations, and I'm not talking to those of you who your spouse is committing adultery. What I'm talking about is those of you in these regular mundane marriages where you're indulging thoughts about what you're entitled to. The word of the Lord is actually to protect you, to put parameters around it so that you go, this is my opportunity to live out the gospel and move towards him. So even a passage that we find hoping as a church from Colossians chapter 3, it's a beautiful passage about gospel transformation, about trusting Jesus about repenting, about walking by the Spirit. The very next verse is about marriage. The way we live out our transformation as married people is in the context of our marriages. And you're not just left with verses that have the word marriage in them. It's supposed to be the place where you live out the one another commands of serve and sacrifice and forgive and give and cherish and honor. All those are meant to be on display in your marriage. And if you tie it to the idea that marriage is pointing to Christ in the church, what's happening in your marriage is you're actually making it plausible for your spouse to believe that God could forgive them when you forgive them, that there's repentance and reconciliation, that God actually loves them and can remove their shame when you accept them and help engage their shame. When you love your spouse the way Christ loves the church, you're making it possible and plausible for them to believe the good news of the gospel. And God will use divorce and unfaithfulness and adultery throughout the scriptures to speak about spiritually what we do to him as an unfaithful people. What's on display for us to break covenant is actually a gospel-distorting decision. And in a way to protect us, God wants to actually rally us in and say, hey, you can avoid hopelessness and the slow suffocation of your marriage by understanding like this is your opportunity to lean in to protect your marriage and not let it drift. I walk out of the guy's office going like, man, it's this or nothing. Well, man, I'm going to work on this. And 20 years later, it is so blissful. You would be, no, I'm kidding. 20 years later, we're still doing the same thing. 20 years later, I'm still reminding myself of the commitment and the, the opportunity in front of us. 20 years later, we're still engaging in repentance and reconciliation and, and engaging in ways that we speak the gospel back and forth to each other in beautiful ways that are so life-giving. Married couples, in your context, this passage isn't just for those people who've crossed the line. It's to you. So that you would lean in to the kingdom of God virtues that say to you, oh, step in here. Don't see that person as a commodity to discard. Value them and invest in them the way God actually designed and intended. Let me say this to those of you who are not yet married. I don't know if you're not yet married 
and you long to be, or not get married because you're terrified? The stats are so horrific that you're overwhelmed and you say, man, I, I don't even know what I would do. Can I say to you that the power of Jesus gives us hope that in a marriage, it's not about getting all of our needs met. It's about us moving towards the person and showing them the love of Christ. There's a beautiful vision for marriage that you can have. And the scriptures would say you don't have to be married to be fully fulfilled. Even this Matthew 19 section, he says, in the kingdom of God, there are those who, who, who aren't in relationships. Like it's, it's an okay life for you. It's not second class. It's not something that you miss the boat on. We have people in our church in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who never got married, and they live fruitful lives. You don't have to get married, but if you're not getting married because you're terrified, let's talk. If the stats shock you and make you have a lack of hope, let's, let's talk. Hey, for children of divorce, whether you're 60 or you're six years old, I'm really sorry. It's not the way it was designed to be. I'm sure it's super complicated. I do know this. It wasn't your fault. And God really cares about you. His design and desire is to protect, not discard. So there's not a scarlet D on your garment that you have to wear around for forever. God wants to actually heal and help. So... So as a church, if the point of this passage is to protect, not prohibit, then let's protect. First in our own marriages, and then can we be the kind of church that protects those who've suffered from divorce? As single moms, single dads, you matter to us. It's really hard to kind of ask for help and to walk in community. It's really complicated. The churches often hurt people and not walk alongside of you when you needed them in lots of places. And for that, I'm really, really sorry. We want to grow to be the kind of community that engages with you, and so we want to protect in a way that honors the meaning of this passage to come alongside of you and give you a reminder of your value and worth that Jesus offers to you. So, so let us walk with you. So, so there's a warning here. But remember what we said last week, every warning is a welcome. It's an invitation. It's, it's a warning to call you to something else. And the gospel of Jesus has mercy in it. And it has healing in it. And as we engage in communion as the application of this text, I would love for you to know this. In Jeremiah 3, God's talking about his covenant relationship with his people, and he's using marriage as an illustration. And he says, hey, I have grounds for divorce. You've been unfaithful. I I should divorce you. And he doesn't. He stays committed. And what you hold in your hand when you take communion is a reminder of how he stayed committed to this unfaithful people to have a way for their sins to be forgiven and their lives to be restored he didn't just tolerate them he went all the way to the cross to welcome and redeem and cherish and the way he fostered this relationship was to lay down his life and there is no end to the applications in your life from that beautiful reality what jesus has done on the cross gives you hope for your current marriage gives you hope for your divorce gives you hope for the chaos that you're in as you hope for your future, for your past. What Jesus did is powerful, and it changes everything. And what you do when you take communion is remember that Christ is your hope, and from that space you apply his gospel to wherever you are in your life. So I would invite you to take communion if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're trusting Jesus for your righteousness, then I'd love for you to take communion. This little cup is a strange little reminder of the broken body and shed blood of Christ, a little wafer is his broken body on your behalf, making a way for the covenant to be kept. And the little juice is a reminder of his blood that was shed that kept the covenant for you so that you could be in this relationship. Though we have been unfaithful, he was faithful.
If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so thankful you're in the room. Communion is not for you. It's for those who are following Jesus. Of course, unless today's the day you're ready to trust Christ. I've actually been praying for you all week that in a sermon about divorce, you would hear the faithful love of God for you and the hope he promises you and offers you and you become a Christian today. If that's you, man, take communion and let's talk after the service. I'd love to share with you what it means to follow Jesus and how to be a part of our church. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, on the back of that bulletin, there's some prayers that will help you kind of navigate how to engage this time, give you some examples of what it might sound like to pray and ask Jesus to speak to you and to help you. But if you are following Christ, then let's take communion together. We'll do that, and then we'll sing one more song, and then we'll be dismissed. So as Roxy plays, let me just pray. Jesus, now would you come and meet us, faithful husband to an unfaithful wife who had grounds to discard us and you didn't? Thank you. I pray now the beautiful reality of what you've done would be applied to the particulars of our situation in ways that we actually feel the redemption of your blood and your broken body. Would you come near to those who are hurting? Would you rebuke those that are hard-hearted? Would you give hope to all of us? And I pray what you did on the cross would be the, the space that like interprets where we are, that you do love, you do care, you're, you're mindful, and you're available to us. So help us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.